This week we're going to cover verses 22 through 30 and next week will be the end of chapter 10. And we're going to be looking at what we'll call one with the father, part one and part two. In John chapter 10, verses 22 through 42, it's one last confrontation between the Jews and between Jesus, and it all is over the person of Christ. And we're going to find who Jesus is, that he is indeed one with the Father. And though there are no parts in God, we're going to take it in two parts over the next two weeks. So this week, verses 22 through 30, let's hear the reading of God's word. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple, in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the Father are one. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, there are a million pressing things in our society, a million pressing things in each one of our lives, but what stands before us right now is of first importance, the person and the work of you, the Son of God, And so, Lord, I ask that you would give us clarity. I ask that you would give us confidence in who you are and your power to save. And I ask that we would carry with us the good news, the gospel of Christ Jesus. So, Father, I ask that you would now call us out of our wandering. Jesus, we ask that you would now come and cast out all fear. Spirit, Would you now preach the Son to our deafness? If you speak, we will hear. We ask this all in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, there are two very important uh, sections in the Gospel of John, kind of keys to understanding the gospel as a whole. Those two parts are the prologue, which is John 1 through 1, 1 through chapter 1, verse 1 through 18, and John chapter 20, where it says the purpose of John. In the prologue, you probably remember the words if I start quoting them. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life and that life was the light of men. And it goes on. And it's, it's beauty in the highest. It's poetry of first excellence. It is truth and it is mysterious. And what we have in the gospel of John is the unfolding. What does it mean that in the beginning was the word? 
it always was? And the word was with God? And the word was God? What are these deep mysteries? The gospel of John unfolds what they are. And then in chapter 20, we have a clear statement of why John was written. These things were written that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and in him, believing you may have life. That's why John was written. These two things are keys to our understanding of the text. The prologue is going to be unfolded beautifully next week. And this week, we're going to hold on to the purpose for which John was written. That these things were written that we would believe Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. And so this morning, there is one goal. It is to know and to understand the person of Jesus. Immediately in our text, there is a confrontation. A confrontation between Jesus and the Jews. And it's over one question. Are you the Christ? And that is the great question we have before us this morning. We want to answer it. We want to see Jesus's answer to it. Because in it, we find if we can answer this question rightly, which we can because Jesus has told us the answer, we will find life in him. So look with me at verses 22 through 23. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So in these verses, we're situated with the context of uh, this conversation. The context is before us. It says that the feast of dedication is taking place. Another name for that feast that you might know is the Hebrew name Hanukkah. Hanukkah. Uh, the word Hanukkah uh, means dedication. Now, what, what it was this feast all about? You're not going to find it in the Old Testament. You'll find it in some other uh, writings. Uh, but the feast of dedication was celebrating a deliverance that God gave his people in the year 163 BC. What had happened is a wicked ruler named Antioch, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, he had come in and he had taken over the temple and he had outlawed scripture. It was, it was a crime to possess any part of Hebrew scripture. And he had desecrated the temple. He came in and he set up an altar to Zeus and he sacrificed pigs on that altar in the temple of God. A more gross form of blasphemy would be unknown to a Jew. To sacrifice a pig on an altar to Zeus in the temple of God. But through a man named Judas Maccabees, the Jews retook the temple. They overtook it and they rededicated it to God. They retook the temple and rededicated it to God. And so this feast was a remembrance of what they did with that, that the temple was back in their possession. And it was for them a time of hope. When no one could imagine they could reclaim the temple, God delivered in their eyes the temple back to them. And it was also a time where they longed for a Messiah. And think about the Jews at this point in time, under the rule of the Roman Empire, 
longing, longing for one greater than Judas the Maccabees, someone who would not just overthrow one ruler, but someone who might overthrow an entire empire for them. This was the context that Jesus is having this conversation in during the Feast of Dedication. And so we find in verse 24, in this context, as Jesus is walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon, which you might know if you read the book of Acts was later where the early church would gather. Keep that in mind. That the Jews gather around Jesus as he's presumably teaching and they ask him a question in this context. Verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus is teaching the Jews and they gather up and they surround him and they ask him point blank, yes or no. Give it to me. Tell it to me straight. Are you the Christ? Are you the Christ? We want to know. You've beat around the bush long enough, we feel. Tell us to it. Say, yes, I am the Christ, or say, no, I am not. But that is the only answer that the Jews want at this point in time. So Jesus obliges them with an answer, but it's not the answer that they want. Look at me, look at with me, verses 25 through 30. Jesus answered them, I told you, And you do not believe the works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I am and the Father are one. Now, one thing you may notice is Jesus didn't directly answer their question. Jesus, tell us plainly. And most commentators agree that the Jews here are not saying, we're a little confused. Can you give us some clarification? No, they're saying, look, cut all the other stuff. Yes or no. And Jesus doesn't answer the question with a yes or a no. Jesus has at least seven I am statements in the gospel of John. And you'll notice that I am the Messiah is not one of them. Why would this be? Why would it be? Now, we'll note in private, this is very interesting. In private, Jesus revealed himself, not in public, but in private to the Samaritan woman after she said, are you the Messiah? She she said, we know when Messiah comes, he'll do such and such. And what does Jesus say? He says, I am. But he still, even at that point, does not say, I am the Messiah. So Jesus, what's the deal? Why won't you just give it to us straight? Are Are you dodging the question? Why wouldn't you reveal yourself to these people? We know in history, Uh, that cults have used these verses to say, hey, Jesus isn't truly divine. 
I know when I was studying up in San Francisco, we had a uh, guest speaker come into the house and the person was saying all kinds of provocative statements, all kinds of things, kind of egging us on. And I was sitting there and I was letting it go and letting it go until it came to the spot where he said, you know, Jesus never said he was divine. And at that point, I said, okay, look, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know if you're just trying to be provocative for the sake of being provocative, but really, could anything be more clear from the gospels that Jesus is divine? What are you trying to do? But still it stands that Jesus did not answer these people's question with a yes or a no. So we need to think critically together. Why would that be? Well, a few reasons. First, we have to recognize Jesus's time had not yet come. We see that throughout the gospels. Crowds try to take him and murder him, but he escaped because his time had not come. He was going to reveal himself as plainly as he wanted to in his own time and in the father's timing. His time had not come. But secondly, we might think, is this kind of cruel of Jesus? Well, remember the context Jesus is speaking in. These Jews would have utterly misunderstood what the Messiah, what the Christ, and those two words are interchangeable, what the anointed one of God would do. They said, are you the Christ? And by that, what did they mean? Are you our political savior? Are you going to overthrow the empire? Are you going to get rid of these overreaches and these taxes? Are you going to make us a free people? And is Israel going to rule the world? They would have misunderstood. And so Jesus in his wisdom and even in his love is not going to give them an answer that would be harmful for them, that they would misunderstand, that they would misinterpret. And the third reason, because it wasn't his time, because they would have utterly misunderstood. The third reason he says in his answer is, I have told you and my works are enough and they testify about me and the, they testify to the father in what he says about me. He says, I don't need to say I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. Look at everything I've done. Look at everything I've said. It all points in one direction. Jesus says, my works are sufficient. He says, I have told you. Think with me, church, of what we've seen of Jesus. Think of his miracles. Think of his claims. The one who turned water to wine. The one who fed multitudes, thousands of people. The one who can walk on water. Who opens the eyes of the blind, which no other prophet could do. And think of his claims, not just his signs and his miracles, but his claims that he is the light of the world, that whoever believes in him won't perish, that he is the bread of life, that streams of living water, he can provide a person that will well up within them and they'll never thirst again, that he is the door and he is the good shepherd. He says, my works, the works that I do in my father's name, they bear witness about me. Verse 26, but you do not believe because you are not 
among my sheep. Jesus authoritatively tells us that they don't believe in the reason, the clause in that sentence, because why? Because they are not among his sheep. Now, here in these plain words of Jesus, that these Jews do not believe, that they've heard, that they've seen, but they reject openly who Christ is. They don't believe because they are not among his sheep. We need to recognize a few things about these, about these words, about this claim of Jesus. First, we recognize here God's sovereignty and man's responsibility, they both reside in this sentence. They heard and they should have believed and they chose not to. And it wasn't because of a lack of comprehension of what Jesus was saying. They understood the words. They understood what he was saying. And, and they were responsible. And from God's eternal omniscient point of view, which we do not have ourselves, but is revealed to us by God in Holy Scripture, in God's view, it is because they aren't his sheep. So we're going to have these two things present before us, and they are, there is for us, for us, not infinite, infinite creators, but finite creatures, there is tension here. Do you feel it? I feel it. What else can we say about this? Well, we can definitely say a second thing. Only God can declaratively make these kinds of statements. None of us can say, you know why they're not a believer. They aren't one of the sheep. We don't have the omniscient point of view. We are not God ourselves. Only God and Jesus as a son of God is able to make declarative statements like this. But it is also within this tension that we remember the words that Jesus has spoken, particularly in chapter 6. He says in verse 37, All the Father gives to me will come to me. All the Father gives to Jesus will come to him. And none who come to him will Jesus ever cast out. Here again is that tension of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. We also find in John 6, 39 that Jesus will lose how many of the ones who the Father gives him? None. None. He will have a 100% success rate. And we remember in John chapter 6, verse 44, that no one can come to Christ unless the Father draws him. So here are God's sovereignty and man's responsibility residing together, only reconciled perfectly in the mind of the omniscient, perfect, omnipotent God. And so here there is mystery. Here we recognize only God can declaratively make these statements and we can only from scripture reverberate them. And so this is all held in tension. But what do we do with it? Well, I want to speak to you right now if you are perhaps worried. If you are perhaps thinking 
in your heart, am I one of God's sheep? Can I have assurance? Can I know? Don't despair, but listen to the words of Jesus because they are utterly full of hope. And let me remind you, he will never cast out any who come to him. Verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Jesus in his answer to the Jews about is he the Christ, he starts talking about his sheep. And then he's going to talk about who he is as the shepherd. And then he's going to talk about his father. Why? Because bound up in understanding that Jesus is the Christ, you must understand what the sheep know about Jesus. You must understand who he is as a shepherd. And you must understand something about his relationship between him and the father. And so three things we see about sheep primarily are this. First, they hear his voice. I think of Ephesians 1 verse 13 that says, and you, when you heard the gospel of salvation, you believed on it. When you heard the gospel, you believed and you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. The sheep of Christ hear his voice. And what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, it means at least this, not not that you need to go into a forest and be really quiet and if you, if you feel that you hear something in your mind or in your heart or you hear an audible voice from God, then you would be his sheep. God can communicate in any kind of way he wants. But we know definitively that this is speaking of receiving the gospel truth. You don't have to despair that you might never hear the shepherd's voice. The shepherd's voice is that Jesus Christ came to save sinners through his cross and his resurrection. And his sheep hear that and they say, that's too good to be true. And we say, but it happened in history. And they believe, they hear, and they come to him. The second thing about sheep is that he knows them. And if you remember, this has an idea behind it of not just head knowledge, but heart affection, love. He knows them and so they know him and there's this love relationship between the sheep and the shepherd. Am I a sheep of Jesus? Have you heard the gospel? Do you believe? Do you love Christ? Not with a perfect love, but with a love that says there's no one like him. He alone is beautiful. He knows them. And so what follows from those two things? Well, what follows is third, that they follow him. Have you followed Christ out of your old way of life into the newness of life he has in the spirit? Have you repented of your sins? Stop trusting in your power to save yourself. Stop trusting in any other hope than Christ and started trusting in him and his power to save. You can have assurance that you are his sheep. Every single one of these is an evidence of grace in your life from God. But praise be to God, it doesn't stop there. Jesus doesn't say, hey sheep, look at yourself, examine yourself and keep going. 
No, as the Puritans used to say, Jesus is going to employ this idea. For every one look you take of yourself, take 10 looks of Christ. Because what we need is not just something within, but something we can't provide. We need Christ himself. And so it's not all about what the sheep do. But in response to the question, are you the Christ? Jesus asserts essentially that he's the good shepherd. And that that adequately answers the question. And so three things have just been told about mostly sheep, but here now three things about the good shepherd. Verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. What does he do? Well, he gives them eternal life. It is both quantitative and qualitative. It is both life unending and life of joy and bliss. In his presence, there is fullness of joy. As right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Not only will they have eternal life, but a further assurance. And you'll never perish. Never. And no one will snatch them out. From his hand. The verb there, snatch, has the idea of violently take. All the forces of hell and all the schemes of man can come against you, but you know what Jesus says? No one's taking you from my grip. No one. And you'll never perish because you have eternal life. Do you doubt your salvation? Do you ever doubt God's love for you or his power? Or maybe, maybe, maybe the circumstances of life just hurt. And the collective pain of life, and life is, is painful sometimes. When we say this is a fallen world, we're, we're not joking Does that collective pain cause you to doubt? Maybe he's not going to come through. Or maybe he would come through, but I'm too weak. Or maybe you can't even look at the eternal perspective because you're saying, honestly, I don't know if I'm going to get through today. Well, look at where Jesus has drawn our eyes. He says, look, not at our ability to provide some life for ourselves, but his giving eternal life. He says, look, not at our ability to hold on to him, but his promise that you'll never perish. I was going into a meeting that I was so fearful of going into a matter of months ago. And I just, I I don't know if you ever get so desperate, you're like, I'll text some people to pray for me. Maybe that'll help some. So I sent out some texts and I got one text back from from a blessed, beloved old pastor And he said, Travis, it is not your grip of Christ that is going to carry you through this. 
but it is his grip on you that's going to carry you through this. It is not even our ability to defeat our enemies. It's not us working up the courage that we'll slay the sin this time in our strength, that we'll defeat the people who oppose us, that we'll defeat the evil one, but it's his promise that no one can snatch you from his hand. No one will be able to come and take you out of my hand. You are in the hand of Christ. We see this explained by Paul in Romans chapter eight, where he makes these declarative statements of how secure we are. Verses 35 to the end of the chapter. Paul says, who shall separate us from the love of God, from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're being regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure, it says in the NIV, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing. But if you're anything like me, I memorized those verses as a kid. Now, the problem with that is I memorized them out of context. Because I said, I know nobody can take me from his hand, but what about my sin? Because I've so sinned against God time and again. What about my sin? What about my own ability to run away? Well, what would John's answer be to that? Chapter one, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What would the answer of Paul be? Romans chapter eight, because I searched it as a kid and I said, oh no, it doesn't talk about sin. But do you know what I realized? Chapter one through seven is only about sin and what Christ has done to pay for our sins. So yes, our sin, our past sins and our present sins and even the sins we will commit, they've been paid for by the blood of Christ. So that won't pull us out of his hands. He gripped us knowing all the sin we would ever commit. And we know from the gospel that knowing the gospel does not lead us in to reckless sin. Knowing the gospel leads us into newness of life, but not even your ability to run away, not even your own sinfulness will cause Christ to lose you. The good shepherd, he laid down his life and he took it up again. Why? to pay for our sins, to defeat death and to destroy the works of the devil. So I feel pretty assured, but there's more. Verse 29, we see not just three things about sheep, not three things about the shepherd, but now we see three things about the father. My father, Jesus, I love it. 
a silly analogy, but it's like a kid who, when they're getting into a verbal confrontation with someone, well, you know what my dad can do? Jesus says, my father who has given them to me, he is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. What do we see about the father? Well, we see the truth once again. The father gave them to Christ. John 6 verse 37. And for what purpose? That they would be brothers of Christ. That they would be sons and daughters of God, the living God. That Jesus in coming, he came in order to bring many sons to glory. It's not a heartless choosing. It's the father adopting into his family of God. Do you feel passed over? Do you feel like nobody would ever choose me? What do we have in the gospel? We have an eternity past. God chose you. God chose you before anything else, knowing everything about you. So whatever you could say is true about your life in history, somebody didn't want you. You sinned against God. You've been hurt by others. Those are all true. But do you know what is more true? God, knowing all about you, chose you before the foundations of the world in order that you should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined to adopt you as sons and as daughters. Not only did the father give them to Christ so that they should be sons and daughters and brothers and sisters of Christ. And so I just have to even say this. Do you know what the incredible news about being a brother or sister of Christ is? The book of Hebrews tells us he's not ashamed of you and he's not ashamed to call you brother and he's not ashamed to call you sister. Secondly, he's greater than all. This is hyperbole of first rate, but it's not hyperbole. There's no greater statement that could be made. God is. How do we fill in the blank? What could we possibly say? I think the only adequate thing we can say is that God is God. God Almighty. God all-knowing, God all-powerful, God all-loving, God all-patient, God long-suffering, God the ever-faithful one. He's greater than all. This is the God who speaks and it is. If he can do that with a word of his mouth, so to speak, do you really think anything is going to get out of his hand to save. If he speaks and it is, do you really think anything is more powerful than the almighty God? Therefore, no one can snatch from his hands. This is full, complete assurance of God's power to save. You are not only in the hands of Christ, but you are in the hands of the Father. Verse 30, Jesus says, I and I and the Father are one. 
So we can rightly say the basis, the foundation of our assurance is the unity of the Trinity. What does that mean? Well, it means this, God is unchanging. Forever the Father has been. And forever the Father has been Father. And so that means forever he has been loving the Son in the unity of the Holy Spirit forever. And he is unchanging. And so since the Father has forever loved the Son in the unity of the Spirit, when he brings us into relationship with him, we have been brought into the unbreaking forever love of God. Because the Father and the Son are one, and they have forever been and forever will be, we are now in Christ and in God and in the Father. These are mind-bending truths, but they're expressed even in Colossians 3, verse 3 where it says, if you have been raised with Christ, your life, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So you're in Christ and in Christ, you are in God. And when Christ who who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You are utterly secure in this relationship. The father and the son are one. This means the Father and the Son, they have one will. They have one mission. That they are two persons, but one being. And so what is the mission of the Father? What is the mission of the Son? It's to redeem all his own. And he will not fail in this mission because God is behind the mission. And so he sent the Holy One of Israel, the one who has the spirit without measure, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. And the good news is that Christ is not a political savior, but he is prophet, priest, and king. And he is even the propitiation for our sins. This is what Christ is. So we have been brought into the forever love of God. So to answer the question, are you the Christ? Jesus said, I told you, look at my works. And so I say to you, church, look at the works of Christ. Look at what he has done. Look at the finished work of Christ. And hear the voice of the good shepherd who through his word and through his finished work speaks Christ says, in effect, I will never lose you. You have eternal life. You will never perish. No one will snatch you out of my hand. There's a a beautiful hymn I love. Uh, it, it uh, played as uh, Deb and I just got married and we're walking uh, down the aisle in reverse. Is that the recessional? Yeah? Or processional? Recessional. It's, it's called, Oh Love That Will Not Let Me Go. And it was written by a man named George Matheson. And George Matheson, when he was in seminary, was engaged to a woman. And uh, they were to be married, obviously. But George Matheson started losing his sight while he was in seminary. 
and he was losing his sight. And so his fiance broke up with him because she said, I don't want to be married to a blind man. And so he moved in with his sister and he lived with his sister for years. But then his sister eventually met someone and she was going to get married. And so on the night before his sister's wedding, the sister who brought him in, he wrote a song called, Oh Love That Will Not Let Me Go. And he said he wrote it in a matter of minutes. It was almost as if it was dictated to him. And the song speaks of a forever love. A love that isn't ignorant of the pain and heartache of life, but a love that will never let us go. I'll never lose you. You're in my hand. You will not perish. My love is an everlasting love. Are you the Christ? Jesus says, I and the Father are one. So we can say, He is the Christ, whose kingdom is forever, but His kingdom comes through a cross. And he is the Christ whose crown, which as John Owen said, the crown is the weight of glory. His crown is a crown of thorns. He is the Christ, but his kingdom comes in a way we never expected. He is one with the Father, but he came into this world to die for us. so I want to ask, do you doubt the love of God? Do you doubt he's going to get you through this? Hear his words. I've given you eternal life. You'll never perish. No matter what happens in this life, you will be raised up with me in the next life. Who is this man named Jesus? He is the Christ. And next week, we're going to see he is even more than that and even more than what we thought. We'll look at that then. Let us pray together. Lord Jesus, you are the anointed one of God. We praise you, Lord, that none will be able to snatch out of your hand. As the book of Daniel says, none can stay your hand. You are God Almighty. You do whatever you please. And we've seen the heart of God expressed in the person and work of Christ. And so we fall down at your feet and we find we have been brought into the forever love of God. And so Lord, I pray that we in the areas we are struggling with sin would by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the flesh. Not as those trying to earn salvation or scared that God's love will forsake us, but as those who are utterly secure in the love of God. Jesus, you are better than we ever thought. And so all we have to give you now is our love and our worship and our adoration. We praise you, God. None will snatch from your hand. It is not our 
grip on you, but your grip on us. Thank you, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.